Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. you with us for any time, you know that we're casting vision as a church. If you were to look forward 10 years uh, and, and look at hope and experience hope in 2031 and then come back and give a report, what would you say? This is the question we're asking. What impressions would rise to the top if you were to visit our church in 10 years time? Well, we are sharing over the next few months our top seven as a leadership. The things that we hope make hope in 10 years. And so far we have shared three of those. First, I think you would notice that we are a church that cares about vocation. Vocation. We want to help connect Jesus to all of your life. We want to help you connect Sunday to Monday. We want to help you connect, as it's been said, God's work to your work, whether that work is paid or unpaid. Second thing you would notice is that we are a church that cares about holistic maturity. Maturity in the Lord involves way more than just a confession of truth. Maturity in the Lord is relational. And so we are a church that cultivates and values and pursues emotional health in the Lord and spiritual transformation. And then third, you would notice that we are a church that practices what we're calling redemptive hospitality. We want hope to be famous for redemptive hospitality in this very inhospitable culture and world. But what do we mean by redemptive hospitality? Because a lot of communities, religious and irreligious communities, value and pursue hospitality, don't they? I mean, even your latest Airbnb that you visited values hospitality. The Marriott values hospitality. So what do we mean as a church when we are pursuing redemptive hospitality? What would set our hospitality apart? Well, redemptive hospitality is how God's people participate in God's redemptive mission. So we say this a lot, that God doesn't have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission, his, his, you know, what Sally Lloyd-Jones calls God's secret rescue plan for the entire cosmos. And then God calls to himself a church. He calls you, you, all of you here, hope to take part and participate. Hang on to that word, participate. That's our calling to participate in God's mission. And we believe that one of the major vehicles, one of the major pathways in the avenues, the how of that mission is redemptive hospitality. We've been talking about at least three ingredients to this vision of redemptive hospitality. And if you were with us, you know what these, what these first two are. The first is what we're calling uh, the lost art of neighbor love. And before that, we talked about table setting, how God sets a table for us so that we can set a table for others. This morning, we're going to talk about the art of conversation. We could say redemptive conversation. The Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which we're open to this morning, will be our guide because in it, Paul wants this little church of Corinth to know that they are being called to participate 
in God's mission through their conversations. It's amazing. Our conversations that we hold with each other right now, with our neighbors, with our barista, with our colleagues, our conversations ought to be enfolded into God's secret rescue plan. That's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. And that's what God is saying to us this morning. So let me just read the text. We'll pray before we dig in. Again, this is chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Lord, would my words and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? Holy Spirit, we need you to empower your word, to empower this sermon, to soften our hearts so that we receive your word and are not hardened by it. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, lately I've been trying to practice what I preach, which is tough for me because I'm an introvert, which means right now I'm taking more steps, some would say baby steps, uh, to engage my neighbors. And this has been great except for one thing. And I want to hear an amen because I don't want to feel alone this morning. I seem to have forgotten how to talk. Anybody? Amen? Okay, good. I used to be able to ask good questions. I used to be able to make connections. I used to be able to skillfully avoid awkward silences. That's gone. (laughs) Awkward silences are like just my bread and butter lately. And I used to do these things even as they exhausted me. But the pandemic took a lot of things away from us. But apparently it took that away from me. A journalist, Katie Haney, she, she wrote this essay with this amazing title. It says it all. I forgot how to hang out. That's the title of the essay. I forgot how to hang out. She says, quote, I never considered myself an extrovert or a particularly gifted conversationalist, but 12 months of near total isolation have sapped me of whatever social stamina and charm I once possessed. I mean, who else feels sapped? of social stamina. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert like me who typically avoids people I know at the grocery. Sorry if that's been you in the past. Or an extrovert like my wife who crosses the street not to avoid people but to say hi to people. We are noticing, all of us, no matter where we are, how hard it is to have conversations these days. Writer Robbie Smith was a pre-COVID conversationalist, we'll call him. He says, but then came Corona. Goodbye, glad-handing. Goodbye, receptions. Goodbye, soirees. Hello, hibernation. Social circles retreated behind Zoom. But now, emerging from lockdown, I've started seeing friends in person again and appear to have forgotten how to talk to anyone. We have forgotten how to talk. And so here's what I want to say. I, th- I want to see this as an amazing window 
to relearn conversation. It's a reset window for all of us. I mean, when I was a kid, my name was Joey, and then I slowly became Joe. And then when I went to college, I had a choice that first week of college. I could go with go by Joseph again, you know? That, I, could, I could reclaim my birth certificate name. And I had that window, I had that window of, re, of, of opportunity, a reset window for my name. I didn't take it, which is why you all call me Joe. But I believe today is a unique window for our church to reset the way we have and hold conversations. Everybody's doing it. So we might as well be intentional about it. Amen. What a time to relearn this art of conversation. This morning, I want us to consider asking God to train us in this art. I believe God actually cares about how we hold conversation with others. And that may be a new statement for you to consider. I believe he wants us to incorporate our conversations into his larger mission. Now, I recognize that for many folks, conversation is something that can carry a large amount of anxiety and a large amount of shame. I just want to say on the front end that Jesus knows this. If that is you, I want you to remember that the yoke of Jesus is light. I want you to remember that Jesus is good. I want you to remember that Jesus is gentle, that he is lowly by his own admission. He doesn't break a bent reed. And if you are a bent reed when it comes to conversation, you just have a, a reaction. You just got to know that Jesus does not break you. That Jesus doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. And so who better to teach you? Than Jesus. I also recognize that for many folks, conversation is a pride. It's something that doesn't make us nervous, uh, but something we relish and maybe have our whole life. But let me just say this. If some of us struggle with hyper self-awareness in our conversations, you might struggle with no self-awareness in your conversations. We all have our struggles in this area. Years ago, uh, we were out to eat, and I watched this little boy get out of his seat and just run around the dining area. He was confident, really confident, and he was having fun, a lot of fun. But he was also interrupting a lot of meals, and he caused the servers to almost drop their trays numerous times. So for some of us, that's our tendency in conversations. We're so comfortable, we're having so much fun, that people are actually like dropping their food, you know what I mean? Metaphorically, maybe even literally speaking. We've never asked God to coach us in how we have and hold conversations. And this is important. If we want to be a church that is about redemptive hospitality, we need to know that a major part of, of extending the welcome of Jesus through hospitality is how we hold conversation. And so I just have a challenge for you beyond this sermon, which I can only just scratch the surface of what scripture says about conversation. I just have a challenge. Maybe make it a goal in the next month or two to just search what the scriptures have to say about saying, about talking, about conversations. You could do a lot worse than just Google conversations or speech Bible and see what pops up. Because I hope we have a mission to extend the welcome of Jesus. And we want to enfold our conversations into that mission. Not just here on Sunday with each other, 
which is important, or any visitors, which is important. But how can we extend the welcome of Jesus in every single conversation we have? And then at Hope, we also have a vision, redemptive hospitality. We want hope hosts everywhere. That's the vision. Hope hosts everywhere. But in order to do that, we need to be trained. Hospitality is not automatic. If the scriptures say anything about human nature, it's that left by ourselves and left to ourselves, we are by nature inhospitable people. But the same scriptures say and show that God sets a table for us by grace. He makes room for his enemies, which includes us in our sin, at his table and at great cost, the blood of the cross. And this enables us to set a table for others at great cost. We talked about that a while ago. We talked about how the Bible also shows us that God became a neighbor to us in Jesus And he draws near to us and he loves us with a perfect neighbor love so that we are now free to love others. Even when our neighbor is our enemy. We love our enemies because we are loved enemies. That's how it works. And the same is true about conversation, friends. God spoke everything into existence. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is a walking word. When Jesus speaks in the gospels, things happen And the Spirit of God inspired this scriptures. We are made in the triune image. And so that means that God loves conversation. And he made us for it. That means that when God saves us, he saves us for his mission. And he wants all of us, even our conversations, especially our conversations, to be on his mission. So all to say, we need divine speech class. Some of you have speech consultants for your job to help you with presentations at work. Some of you took classes on conversation uh, for, your, for your career or for school. Why wouldn't we extend the same intentionality with our neighbors and our colleagues? Living on God's mission requires no less. And so we're going to talk about talking this morning. Uh, and to do this, we're going to focus again in Paul's letter of Colossians. And there's a reason we're doing this. Because in this letter, Paul is helping these Christians talk to their neighbors. Sometimes in the New Testament, letters are written to persecuted church communities. And so, for instance, Peter. Peter writes to the church to be ready to give a defense. And so he's giving counsel on how to talk, but it's often in a context where the persecution is severe enough that most of the conversations we're having with others is a defense. What I love about the book of Colossians is that Paul knows these Colossian Christians have more freedom than that. They just do. If you were to study the the situation in which Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, you would know that these early Christians were interacting in the market with freedoms. They're having conversations in all the places like work. And so Paul is showing them how Jesus changes those interactions. And I believe that's where we're at as a church these days. Scholar James Dunn says this about Colossians. Here evidently was a church not on the defensive against powerful forces organized against it, but expected to hold its own in the social setting of marketplace, baths, and meal table, and to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and speech. So we have a lot to learn in this small passage because in our culture... We, I believe we still can hold our own in social settings as believers. 
And so how can we grow in this lost art of conversation? So we're going to cover three areas. And the areas we're going to cover have everything to do with how Paul talks about it. So we're going to talk about conversation by first talking about our conversation with God, prayer. Then we're going to talk about our conversations about God, evangelism. And then we're going to talk about our conversations with others. What we would call maybe small talk. So first we start with prayer. And why do we do this? Because Paul does. So verse 2, if you look down, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So in order, I think, to learn conversation with others, we need to learn conversation with God. These come together. These go together. And I find this fascinating that Paul begins this passage of, of, of conversation with conversation with with others, with conversation with God. So Paul's not giving us a full treatment of prayer here this morning. He's really showing, not telling what his prayer life is about and what he thinks prayer is about. And it's not really the focus of this message, prayer. But it's worth spending just a few minutes here because talking to God and how we talk to God really does inform how we talk to others. It really does. There are two dynamics that Paul shows in this text that ought to characterize our conversations with God. The first is an unsettled longing, and the second is a settled gratitude. So first, our conversations with God are characterized by an unsettled longing. Paul says we pray being watchful. Watchful. This word was used in those days for the guard service. When you're on guard duty, and I've never been on guard duty, I have gone on like campouts before where I feel like I should be on guard duty. You don't sleep. You don't settle in. You stay awake. You stay alert. And the same is true when we pray. When we talk to God, we have an unsettled longing for Jesus to come again and to make things right. We have an awareness of the troubles around us. We don't water down how jacked up life is when we pray. We're alert. Okay, there's an unsettled longing. But Paul balances this unsettled longing with a settled gratitude, doesn't he? He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay, so if our unsettled longing is is future-focused, waiting for Jesus to come like a thief in the night, then our settled gratitude could be understood as present-focused, And scholars point out how this phrase, this simple little phrase about prayer in Paul's letter, presents a beautiful tension. If our unsettled longings are totally aware of the challenges in our life and the the inability, the frank inability that we have to meet those challenges, then, then our settled gratitude is how we are thankful for the good gifts that we do have in the midst of it all. I've talked before about Ernest Shackleton and his ship, the Endurance. And so in 1914, if you don't know about Ernest Shackleton, he took an expedition with 28 crewmates to Antarctica. And historian Nancy Cohn says, I shared this with you before, but it's worth saying again. She says, it started out to be a grand mission about fame and glory and scientific endeavor. But once his ship was moored in the ice and not moving, his mission changed 
dramatically. It suddenly was, how in the heck do I get them all home alive? So that was Shackleton's endurance. But despite all of this, historians point out that Shackleton valued holiday feasting. And so think about this. Their ship is moored on a block of ice. And yet Shackleton would get extravagant and make sure his crew was celebrating and feasting on holidays. And this describes well how we hold conversation with God. On the one hand, we're unsettled, we're, we're trapped, we're stuck. We feel these ways. We, we watch for rescue as we're moored on the ice. But on the other hand, we can settle in with God, What can't we? He sets a table for us. He provides all we need. Jesus serves us. He nourishes us even with himself. It's a both and. And so let me just ask you briefly, what characterizes your conversations with God? Is it mainly unsettled longing? Is it mainly settled gratitude? If we only have one without the other, our prayer life will be unbalanced. If we're only watchful, we'll be overly anxious. If we're only grateful, we'll be naive. It's both. And this will flavor how we converse with our neighbors. Think about it. We are settled in our soul with the living God. And yet we are unsettled in our soul with the living God. The way we talk to God himself is both settled and unsettled. And if that doesn't impact your posture and how you talk to others, nothing else will. Pastor Tim Keller calls this the paradoxical character of Christians. Because of the gospel, we come across humble because we know our sin and what we're capable of and therefore unsettled, humble and unsettled, and yet bold because we're deeply joyful for the forgiveness that we have, for the hope that we have, for the knowledge that we have, the intimate knowledge that we have, that all that is broken and sad will one day become untrue. And so this will impact our posture. We know that it is brokenness that we experience every day. And yet giftedness that we experience every day. We know the horrible depths of sin, but also the amazing depths of Jesus' redemption. And so our capacity to cry matches our capacity to laugh. We're not naive with our neighbors about the brokenness of our neighborhood. We're not naive with our neighbors about the brokenness of the newsfeed. We're not naive about the brokenness of our family life. We're not naive to that. We're not pushing that aside in the name of gratitude, but neither are we pushing aside the true real gifts, the, the things that God has set at our table that are truly good. And so there's, I think one way to think of it is when you talk to your neighbors, they're going to notice two things, wrinkles in your brow and laugh wrinkles on your face both. You have a gratitude and a gravity in your posture. We don't shrug off injustice or hardship. And that gives us wrinkles in our brow. But we have laugh lines on our face also. That's our conversation with God. Okay, our conversation about God. Let's let's move on to verses three and four. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So notice first, 
Our conversations about God are God-centered. This is a simple point, but easy to remember, uh, but important to remember. When we talk about God with others, we are not the point. We often make ourselves the point. Paul says we do this to declare the mystery of Jesus. We're not the heroes. Jesus says. So if anything, we present ourselves when we talk about God um, sort of uh, as needy and weak. Not sort of, completely needy and weak. We can own our weakness, and that actually makes God compelling. Our job when talking about Jesus with our neighbors is declarative. It's not legislative. We're not telling people rules for life or ways to vote or advice for living. We're simply telling good news about Jesus. He is the hero. Paul says, pray that I would talk clearly, which is how I ought to speak. And so this goes along with that. Clarity about Jesus means we're not, we're not mudding it up with, with exalting ourselves. We don't talk to impress others. Our motives are simply, Jesus is the hero. That's our motive. And so clarity happens. We don't need anything from our neighbors. We have everything we need in Jesus. People, when talking to you, should get the impression when they hear about Jesus that you are all about Jesus. (laughs) Not yourself. Your hopes and your joys are because of him. But number two, if our conversations about God are God-centered, they're also God-given. And this is important. Paul says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So for Paul, this was literal. He was in prison and he needed a door to be opened. Okay, so that was quite literal. But for us, it's as simple as noticing where your conversation is going and see opportunity to mention the hope that is within you. Take this step because God is opening the door. We're not being asked to to bust doors open. We're being asked to notice when they open. Do you know God is a great evangelist? We participate in his mission, remember. And they open all day long if you have the eyes to see. I never noticed birds until I started birding. And I'm sure some of you are noticing some birds behind me. I know on Easter there was a a red-tailed hawk sort of swooping around. And when you're attention lags in this sermon. I'm just glad there's stuff to look at behind you that's not a classroom. But now that I've started birding, I hear them everywhere. I see them everywhere. I'm interested in them everywhere. And it's the same with God conversations. Doors are opening everywhere with the people you're talking to. Everywhere. Just ask God to help you notice. Our vision is that in 10 years, hope is generating a thousand or more conversations a week about how Jesus changes everything. These conversations aren't forced. They're natural. They're not even being kept track of because who cares? We're not keeping track. But the point is that we're noticing open doors and we're walking through them. There's two problems with evangelism. Some of us break doors down and it's damaging. Others of us ignore open doors. I just dare you to ask God to open a door for you to talk to your neighbor about the hope that is within you, namely Jesus. It's a risky prayer. Which I myself even need to take to heart. So conversation about God. So with God, about God, and now finally, conversation with others. So what about the other 90% of our conversations? 
That's what verses 5 and 6 are about. Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what do we see here about our conversations? I think number one, our conversations with our colleagues and our neighbors and our friends ought to be gracious. Gracious. This means we talk with others in a way that proves or shows or demonstrates that we have been rescued by God because of grace and not anything that we have done. That Yes, that means that our conversations will be profoundly humbling, humbled. We will be humble in our conversations. We are not impressed with ourselves. We are saved by grace. And so our speech is characterized by that same grace. The conditions of our salvation is admitting how unimpressive we are. And so you're always trying to impress your neighbors or your colleagues when you talk to them. That is not in keeping with grace. Are you ever letting them talk? Are you ever learning from them? Or do you know everything? If we are saved by grace, it means that our neighbors are oftentimes much lovelier people than we are. Have they heard that from you before? Are you a good listener? Are you gracious in your conversations? Some of us steamroll others in our conversations. That ought not be if we are saved by grace. Do you see it? There's a connection. Our salvation flows through our conversations. Number two, our our conversations should be salty. Salt in those days was, was pungent. And so salty conversation is the opposite of dull conversation. It can be memorable. It can be attractive. Salt was also a preservative. And so salty conversations don't degrade or demean others. But they build up. So Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I just want you to imagine when you're having a conversation with your neighbor, do you have one of those... uh, fertilizer spreaders that you like push them and they, they they spread the fertilizer out on the grass just imagine that you're having a conversation you're flinging words out is it helping them grow is it building them up could it possibly be fertilizer in their life salt was a fertilizer in those days it was also as i said a preservative so again it it, it preserves what is good and right and true conversation should be salty. And then our conversation should be personalized. Notice Paul says each person, each person. This means that our conversations are not canned. We say their name. We ask personal questions that communicate care and communicate attention. Christians are often having two conversations at the same time when they're talking to their neighbors. They're conversing with God and they're conversing with their neighbor at the same time. They're asking God, how can I serve this person with my, with my conversation? 
Lord, help me remember their name. <laughs> Amen. Anybody? Lord, we had an experience recently about this. We just forgot the name and we're like, Lord, like what, what is their name? And then we saw them like minutes later. Just have ask the Lord about these things. He'll give you recall. Sometimes he won't. And that'll be humbling. And we're back to grace again. The point is, we're, we're personalizing our conversations. We're, we're saying, how can I love this image bearer in this conversation? I think this is a helpful thing to keep in mind when we think about having conversations about God with evangelists. Sometimes we lose this. And we kind of, we sort of trammel them with our, with our evangelism. And we don't ask the questions. We don't ask the questions that are, that are affirming about who they are as image bearers of God. And so our conversations are personalized and gracious and salty. My wife, she's a teacher, and she gets two kinds of gifts. The impersonal teacher gift and then the personalized gift. And if any of you are a teacher, you know the difference. They, they used to be apples, the impersonal gift. You just, you just got an apple, and you just know, well, this is what you give teachers. They've sort of evolved from apples to, like, gift cards, but... Sometimes, every once in a while, she'll get this amazing personalized gift. I just want you to consider seeing your conversations with others as a personalized gift. It's gracious, it's salty, it's personal. And I'll be honest, maybe you find this prospect exhausting. As I said earlier, we're just figuring out how to talk again after a long year. But I want you to think about this as, flip the script a little bit and see this as an invitation. As we enter into conversations, we can sort of plant new seeds about how we talk. Remember, we're not saved by our good works. Neither are we damned by our bad works. In the same way, we're not saved by our good conversations. or damned by our failures to have these kinds of conversations. We are invited to integrate our faith into the way we talk about our neighbors and with our neighbors. So again, if we're going to be a church that practices redemptive hospitality, our conversations will be hospitable too. What if we started each morning saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for for making room for me. At great cost. Lord, thank you for setting a table, making a place for me at your table at greatest cost. And Lord, thank you for speaking to me graciously and carefully and giving me access through prayer. Now, Lord, would you flow through me in my conversations with others? Would these gifts now then be a gift to my neighbor today? And so Lord, we do pray that this would be what characterizes our church in 10 years time, but maybe even in 10 hours time when we go home and we say hi to our neighbor. Give us one thing from this text that we could apply, that we could lean into this week. Not to prove our love for you, but because you love us so well. And it's in your name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. 
For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.